Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. In 2009, our business dropped 85%. And yeah, making payroll was impossible. And then you have to decide how passionate you are about what you're doing and, and invent a creative way to sustain it. Welcome to I Made It in San Diego, Voice of San Diego's podcast about the stories behind the region's businesses, the big and the small, and the people who made them what they are. I'm Kinsey Moreland, and in this week's show, a story about how a young woman made a bold move early in life that set her on a course towards success in a field long dominated by men. Jennifer Luce is now a well-known architect in San Diego. She designed the Nissan headquarters in La Jolla in Michigan, Extraordinary Desserts in Little Italy, and dozens of other award-winning projects, big and small. Jennifer always knew she wanted to be her own boss. But she had to rebuild her firm three times before it finally took hold. Jennifer was born in Canada, and it didn't take her long to figure out that she wanted to be an architect. So I grew up in Montreal, which is a really beautiful, kind of urbane European city. And uh, my father was from a French background, uh, not French-Canadian, but actually from France. And my mother was Scottish. Um, and they both had a design sensibility. So my father came from a lineage of um, family members working in the textile industry in Europe. And he had just a beautiful eye for design and graphics. And I lived most of my childhood in a house that was covered in things like floral and paisley and <laughs> all sorts of pattern. And it was always fascinating to me. Jennifer was the kid always off on her own drawing. Her parents worked together running a textile business. The family talked about design quite a bit. At first, she thought she'd end up as a graphic designer or a textile designer. But by the time she was a teenager, she fixated on drawing houses. She also liked math and was influenced early on by a high school teacher who taught her how to do mechanical drawings. She was hooked. That level of precision was something that I became fascinated with. And I think it was the combination of this creative mind with a mathematical mind and drawing, drafting made perfect sense in terms of a combination of skills. And I never really imagined, I, I'm not sure if I would have been an architect had I not had that experience. After high school, Jennifer applied to just one school and one program, Carleton University, a prestigious school in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, as an architecture major. She didn't have a backup plan, so it's a good thing she ended up getting in. She graduated in five years and quickly landed her first job, but she ended up hating it. I had my first job in the architecture world, and my first project was to work on a prison. 
which was really distressing and uh, made me in a way question what I had chosen to do, frankly. To fulfill her creative desire, she decided to enter an international design competition for fun. At the dining room table in her parents' house where she still lived, she worked on the design at night and weekends. It took her a few weeks and a lot of thought, but she finished up with a beautiful design for a building based on images from tarot cards and the need for humans to pursue technology but also stay connected to their own spirituality. So I dove into this competition, um, an international competition for the Center for Innovative Technology in Virginia. And it was to be the first smart building in America. And it was to be a research facility for academia and the corporate world to come together to innovate technology. Of course, I wasn't a technological person, but the whole idea fascinated me and sent the, the application off really not knowing what would happen and never imagining that I would move to the United States and never expected to hear anything and ended up at that time receiving um, a note in the mail that I had won. Jennifer was 23, just two months out of architecture school. 500 firms across the world had applied to the same competition. She was up against people three times her age with decades more experience. She wasn't even a licensed architect yet. And yet there she was holding a letter that effectively put her in charge of a multi-million dollar project. I got the letter at the firm and I opened it and everyone was just so surprised. But one thing the letter said was you have five days to figure out who you're going to associate yourself with and make a promise that you're going to move to the United States to complete the project. Wow. So you weren't going to part, you couldn't partner with the firm you were working with because they were Canadian based. Right, exactly. So how did you do that? How did you find a firm? Well, it was really difficult because in Canada, your education is European based. Uh, I knew about Frank Lloyd Wright, but he wasn't alive anymore. <laughs> and I couldn't collaborate with him. So uh, my father had been traveling and had a flight magazine and it had a feature on an architect in the United States. And I called them and said, you know, I have this multi-million dollar commission would you be interested <laughs> <laughs> did they think you were joking they actually thought I was joking and my father was in the background saying you need an attorney you need an attorney uh, but I was so enthusiastic and excited and you know the United States of America was to me a place of freedom and and uh, anything would be possible there and I got in my little car that didn't have air conditioning and i drove to this firm in Florida and we started a collaboration together and I you know frankly really didn't know what I was doing but I was in the frying pan and I learned so much in the three-year period that it took to build the project and it was it was fascinating. Jennifer still has a copy of that design competition letter. She framed it and hung it on her office wall, and she says she looks at it often, and it reminds her of simplicity, purity, and the importance of having a clear idea or narrative behind every design. The firm she handed the big job to was Architect Onica, a famous architecture firm based in Miami. Some of its buildings are actually shown in the opening to Miami Vice. 
It was an exciting time for a 23-year-old, and even though she was unlicensed and didn't have any experience, the firm did let her take a lead in the project. Problem is, though, they didn't pay her like she was a leader. And, you know, I had a lot to learn, so I had a lot of backup behind me, but um, it was an opportunity to, to build, um, to understand what it takes to do that. And le- winning a competition early in life is, is, is a really uh, pivotal thing to happen to you because you're jolted forward, even if you might not quite be prepared for it. So what was your title at that firm? Do you remember? Um, I was a designer. I was making $11 an hour <laughs> working on a multi, multi, multi-million dollar project. But I was so happy. I was happy to be there and meet new people and really understand um, what it is to make architecture for the first time. They didn't give you any sort of bonus or like, hey, you brought this giant project to our firm. No. Here's a kickback. Lesson for <laughs> the Your dad future. was right. And my uh, father was correct. You exactly. probably should have had an attorney. My father was always right. <laughs> Don't you hate that? <laughs> The project in Virginia was built to lots of fanfare. The experience taught Jennifer that she had what it took to be an architect, and it gave her the confidence to break out and do her own thing. She'd never been to California, but she knew that's where she wanted to be. To her, the sunny state represented endless opportunities. And you moved right to San Diego. Right to San Diego. I have to admit, I thought San Diego was a a suburb of L.A., (laughs) and I actually thought I was moving to L.A., Sight unseen. Uh, but here here I was in this beautiful place. And I was going to make it work. And so what's the next step? Did you open up a studio? Mm. I um, associated with uh, a young man here who I had met through Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and we worked together for four years. And it gave me a really wonderful education of um, building on a smaller scale and building for community. What was the name of the firm? Uh, was called Visions. And who was the other architect? Um, Dick Friedson. Okay. Who I think actually had just moved back to San Diego from um, the East Coast. Um, we did a whole series of senior centers for uh, communities uh, in the region. It was a fantastic education about how important civic architecture is um, in our in our world. Jennifer liked her partner and the work they were doing, but she wasn't quite fully satisfied. She was still in her 20s, itching to move forward and ready for her next move. You know, I was on that journey of wanting to be my own thing. Very determined. I think I came from watching my father do that uh, throughout his career. And I was pretty stubborn. I'm sort of a Torian Canadian, you know, it's stubbornness um, is a part of my psyche. So I just, I did it on my own. I went out on my own and worked out of my house for many, many years before the firm really took hold. When Jennifer turned 30, she finally became a licensed architect. She also got really lucky and won the green card lottery, which made working in the States a lot easier. It was a pivotal year that helped propel her forward in her career. Armed with her license and her green card, Jennifer felt like she was ready to take the next step in her career. She hired a couple employees, and without any outside investment or financial help from anyone, she just got to work and tried to make it happen. 
Canadians don't take loans. <laughs> we do everything with cash. And so, you know, you evolve slower, frankly, f- for that reason. But, um, but there's a certain level of pride that you did it without the assistance of anyone or anything or any loan. And, you know, and we, we did fine. It, I, it's worth the struggle, frankly. The first year of owning her own firm, they grossed just $18,000. She was barely able to pay her two employees and herself. When we come back, how Jennifer went from running a struggling architecture firm in her Hillcrest home to running one of the most successful and well-known architecture firms in San Diego. Support for Voice of San Diego podcast is made possible in part by a generous supporter of Monarch School, a school that educates students impacted by homelessness. I'm joined in the podcast studio by Emily. Thanks for being with me, Emily. My pleasure. Emily, you're a senior at Monarch School. What are some of your favorite classes this year? My favorite classes this year would have to be math with Mr. Finnick and government with Ms. Becknell. Oh, Wow. Both of them are very engaging with me, so they're my favorite. Okay. So do we have a future lawyer here? Those sound like a very serious career path you might be laying ahead. Possibilities are endless. (laughs) And this is your second year at Monarch. Can you tell me how you and your family found the school? My mom had found the school through St. Vincent's Resources. I'm not really sure where it came up, but that is where she got the information about what the school does for students impacted by homelessness and the same circumstances I was going through. You can hear the rest of my interview with Emily and learn more about Monarch School at the end of the show. Hey, welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Kinsey Moreland. Jennifer's architecture firm started growing after that first year. They took on more projects and she brought on her third employee. But then she got that itch again. She applied and got into graduate school at Harvard, where she dove into learning more about art and architecture and how to better marry the two. She had to let her business go so she could focus on her studies. But she says she learned a lot at Harvard, and the degree increased her confidence even more. So when she graduated, she felt even better equipped to restart her firm from scratch yet again. She was 35, it was 1995, and pretty quickly she landed a big commission in Hillcrest. And we got a commission to design an apartment in the Cable Loft building in Hillcrest, which was the first for sale condominiums lofts in San Diego. Oh, wow. And we worked with two fantastic guys who had moved from Chicago, and they were, um, they had left their professions and were celebrating um, the fact that they were a gay couple, and the apartment was the celebration. So we worked for two years to build a really, really beautiful beautiful thing for them in collaboration with them and that's really the project that made us noticeable not only locally but nationally it garnished so much conversation and accolade that um, the work took off and that's when we realized 
the office needed to leave the house. <laughs> uh, my boyfriend at the time actually made it pretty clear that that had to happen. And um, we purchased the loft in the Carnation Building. And I really believe space matters. And all of a sudden, we were in a 25-foot high, beautiful, barrel-vaulted ceiling space with all the possibilities that one's mind could ever imagine. And the work flowed in the door. One of the projects Jennifer did during that time of growth was a remodel for a Salk Institute scientist who owned a little home up on a hill in La Jolla. Uh, I read a story about you in the New York Times, and it was about that house remodeled by Greg Lemke, the neurobiologist at Salk Institute in La Jolla. Right. And I'm going to read a sentence from that article. After their first meeting, Miss Luce asked Mr. Lemke to create a work in any medium that would reveal his sensibility. And it goes on to explain that he sort of created a mixtape of music, I believe. And you somehow used that music to come up with the design, the redesign, or remodel of his house. So... Is this something you do with all your clients? Talk to me about this. <laughs> it's mostly on the residential level because there's an intimacy about that. But I really want to understand who I'm working with and make sure that I interpret their desire in the most effective way. So giving a client an assignment is a shock to them. And Greg still talks about that shock. But it's also a wonderful adventure for them to say, okay, what? is it that I really want? And who am I? And how do I describe myself? And I could easily publish a wonderful book on all the responses, because some of them had to do with music. Others were written pieces. Um, there was also photography in another project. And it's a very exciting moment for them to realize how much we cared about who they are. So that house in particular, it was a sort of basic stucco box. Mm -hmm. You turned it into uh, minimalism, beautiful open floor plan, lots of concrete. Um, so have you always been, you know, modernist, minimalist? Mm -hmm. Has that been your aesthetic? Or how, how did that evolve in terms of, I mean, you've really carved out a space for yourself there. Yeah, I think it, it, that goes back to that story about growing up with floral patterns. And then also growing up in a city that was made of stone from the 18th century, um, you either adopt that and embrace it or you reject it. And I, as much as I respect both things, I chose a more minimal path for myself after being educated very intensely in the modernist movement in Europe. And so Greg's project was really interesting because, yes, mid-century is very popular and beautiful, especially in this landscape, but it wasn't a remarkable house. It was a house from the 70s that, like you say, was a stucco box. And what do we do to bring it to life with a very limited budget, by the way? <laughs> um, and And those were two really critical challenges that made the success of the house. Um, it works at Salk. What a beautiful, amazing place. It's, in my mind, the most important architecture in the country. And, and how do you make a place for somebody to have sort of a more meditative experience at home uh, where he can enjoy the music that he loves? He's 
a classical music lover, but also a composer. So the music that he shared with me was entirely about the fugue, which I knew nothing about. And I learned so much from these assignments too, about um, music that is layered and complicated. And so he loved this complication, but how do you make a place that's meditative out of that? So the fugue was a theme and I never would have had that theme for the project had I not asked him to share that music with me or a project with me. So um, the minimalism was a perfect answer for him because he really wants quiet space. Scientists, I've discovered, spend more time thinking than architects do. Um, there's a lot of uh, complicated process that needs to be thought about. And so this house for him was that respite, that place to sort of hide. And the minimalist aesthetic was the right answer for that. Things were going well for Jennifer and her firm. The jobs poured in. People liked the way she treated each project like a work of art. She says being in a tight-knit community like San Diego also helped keep the momentum going. So have you always had a knack for sitting down with clients and really selling them on yourself? You're selling yourself, really. Yeah. If you, I always say if you get me in the door, I will um, be able to talk to you about maybe maybe things you didn't even imagine that you needed. But um, getting in the door is tough for me. I'm not really a marketing person. I think Canadians are, tend to be a little more shy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're so confident about what we're doing that once we are on board, it's a fantastic journey together. So how did you uh, sort of take care of that shortcoming early on mm -hmm. in the marketing? Did you always hire someone else to help you with that or you just no. forced yourself to do it? Yeah, I think I think it was just about making personal relationships. And I'm frankly, San Diego is a fantastic place for that because it's a smaller community. And once you build those relationships, they grow. And I, that has been such a pleasure. So the fact that you ended up accidentally in a suburb of LA turned out to be a good thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. LA would have been tougher. <laughs> Jennifer's East Village studio was bustling with business, but it was the early 2000s and the East Village itself was still a rundown, somewhat sketchy warehouse district. Petco Park was under construction and developers were just starting to swoop up the property all around it. The firm was gearing up to do a hotel project, but then 9-11 hit and their business took a big hit too. It was a very difficult neighborhood, but we knew that it had heart and soul. And that was why we were there. Um, we also thought that we would be designing a hotel downtown. It had a huge um, charrette with 30 great thinking minds all from all over the country came to the loft in East Village, which nobody knew about. And um, we had a great conversation about hotels. Two weeks later, 9-11 hit and all of our work went away. And we had just bought the loft and what were we, what were we going to do? So it was another moment of reinventing um, oneself and putting it out there. The firm struggled. 
But just when things got really bad, Nissan stepped in and hired Jennifer's firm to design the company an office in La Jolla. The project was a smashing success, and Nissan loved it so much, they had her design another office for the company in Michigan. But just as work started picking up again, the Great Recession hit in 2008. Architecture was one of the industries hit the hardest. We, as architects, are affected by recessions in a, in a profound way. In 2009, our business dropped 85%. And yeah, making payroll was impossible. And then you have to decide how passionate you are about what you're doing and, and invent a creative way to sustain it. And we realized that no one would be building anything. And what was our skill? And this is a really important lesson. I hope we never have to experience it again, but it's likely where you tap into the core of, of what you're good at and you try to find other ways to use it. And we just happened to encounter a wonderful couple who he had been one of the founders of design, uh, BMW Design Works in L.A., and they had moved down here, and we began communicating with each other and created a series of workshops that we could do together, um, particularly on empathy and design. And I realized that it was something that um, I had employed in the work that we were doing, but had never really articulated it in kind of a theoretical way. And so we did a series of empathy workshops for General Electric healthcare all over the world for two to three years. And it, it was a wonderful way to occupy the time of the recession, to learn, um, to have enough to at least sustain oneself, but to be curious then about another way of practicing, um, which I, I think these recessions make you dig super deep into who you are. Alongside the lectures, Jennifer's firm also started taking on smaller projects like designing one-of-a-kind furniture. She was commissioned by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego to design a large artistic conference table, for example, and she did several other projects like that, which let her get deeper into her practice of exploring the relationship between architecture and art. Jennifer had to move the firm out of the East Village after just a short time there. There was just too much construction and noise. So they opened an office on Santa Fe Street in La Jolla, where the firm is now. She held on to that East Village building, though, and used it to generate income as a for-rent events venue for both private groups and nonprofits. She only recently sold that building and has plans to possibly use the money so she can act as a developer and commission her own firm to build a project. It'll be the first time ever she's been able to build her own project like that. That's a way off from happening, though, because right now her firm is busy with the exact kind of clients and work she's always been most interested in. We persevered through the recession, and I would say started over again, frankly. The third time, huh? Yeah, third time's third a charm. Yeah, the third time is a charm. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> um, yes, and... and I think through that perseverance, the work that you're meant to have comes to you. And we are at a moment where we're just doing exactly what we want to be doing. And it, it's rare that you don't have to take a project that 
doesn't philosophically (laughs) work or where the budget is going to be terribly challenging or you know what there's there's always that we have this five p's for for taking a project on people place project profit I'm not going to remember all of them. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> but um, I, I think that we're working in the art world, and that's a place I really want to be. I love, I love, I'm the champion for the arts. Um, so we're, we're working on a small uh, project in New York City right now for an art collector. And it's um, a very... It began as a very emotional story because um, it was the apartment that Zaha Hadid was to live in, in the building that she designed. And she was a mentor of mine, and I spent some really great time with her. And I think she represented to women what the profession could, could offer with some muscle and dedication. And so I am working in this space that was meant to be hers. And we spent many, many months wondering if we should connect with her office to recreate what she intended, or should we move on and and pay our respects somehow? And that's what we decided to do. We're under construction now, and it's very exciting. The building is absolutely beautiful. It's on the High Line. And um, this idea of making a house for art is um, a really wonderful challenge. Wow, yeah. What a, Talk about a perfect project. I mean, yeah. that really is. You're right. Um, the Mingay. Yes. It's a museum for folk art and craft. Mm-hmm. It's in Balbo Park. Um, you know, it's a city-owned historic building, which comes with all kinds of restrictions. So you, though, have all these kind of radical ideas about what a museum is. And so how are you fulfilling these ideas you have about how important museum space is and working within the confines of this historic city-owned building? Such a challenge. But I, I think through... Uh, Constraint comes opportunity. So at at first, we were commissioned to um, make some changes to the museum, and it was clear that it is a historic building not to be touched. And it's like you've got your elbows on the edges, and you're thinking, "Mm, how can we reach out? Because the context is this absolutely beautiful park. And then... Yes, I think that the role of museum is changing. It started changing in the twentieth, late 20th century, and now it's even more evident to me after much travel with the museum to look at museums and really understand them, that they're becoming more civic, more social, more open. They're not um, hermetically sealed anymore. And so... That was where we began the challenge with designing Minge. How do we be open and how do we deal with a closed building? So opening up windows is the first, like, <laughs> why not, <laughs> right? Um, and understanding there is a moment where arcades that are evident in the park could become places where we open a door and say, welcome. 
this idea of welcome is really important. It is a museum of craft and folk art and design, uh, objects of use, and things that are really democratic. Yeah. Right? You're stripping away the pretension that is like attached to fine art, right? Right. And so we don't want to hermetically seal the museum. We want to open it up. And so the working with historic resources and understanding that there is a certain respect that has to happen for our history, and it's something that I think the European architects do very well, how do you respect that, honor it, and then move it forward just into the century enough that it it welcomes someone in the door? Um, and so we've opened up arcade uh, doorways. We've opened up windows so that the building glows at night. There's one part of the the property that's non-historic, and we're adding, we said, okay, well, if we can add something there, what would it be? It would be a civic thing. So it's a theater that will be used by all of the museums in the park, um, Old Globe Theater, and so it's the welcoming element as well. It it has been a long process of thinking, um, but that civic uh, nature then infiltrates the programming, the way the spaces are organized, the ground floor will be free to the public. It's just a different way of thinking about communicating that art form that is not a painting on the wall. It's an object that you might even use in your kitchen Mm -hmm. that's being celebrated. And how do we make that accessible to all? The Mingay redesign is scheduled to break ground in 2018. Jennifer's firm now employs eight architects and designers and grosses about $1.5 million annually. Jennifer's professional success, though, has come at a price, her personal life. She never married or had kids, and she says she's still learning to become okay with that. Have you decided that you're just taking a different path and this is satisfying for you? It is definitely a different path. And actually, I'm going to therapy about that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, especially as a woman, did you take, you didn't take the expected um, path of convention, but you took one that feeds a certain passionate need and is that enough? It's a really good question, which I haven't answered yet, but I plan to in the next six months. <laughs> but no, I, I think that it's been such a wonderful journey. And I've met such wonderful people that um, maybe that that traditional view of how we navigate life it wasn't for me. And this is. I fell in love a number of times. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think the work has been so pivotal for me. It's my passion. And I think that I was just so determined to make it work as a, you know, a Canadian uh, woman in the profession, which is not so easy and wasn't easy then and still isn't easy today, that I just um, buried myself in, in the work. And um, it's been fruitful. Thanks for listening to I Made It in San Diego. 
I'm Kinsey Moreland. I wrote and produced the show. Scott Lewis added his wit. Adam Greenfield mastered and mixed it. Visit voiceofsandiego.org slash podcast to learn more about our weekly Voice of San Diego political affairs show, our Good Schools for All Education podcast, the Kept Faith Sports podcast, Beer Talk Radio, and all the shows in the VOSD podcast network. If you like the show, go to voiceofsandiego.org and click the donate button. Or if you'd like to sponsor it, contact me at Kinsey, K-I-N-S-E-E at V-O-S-D dot O-R-G. Now back to our sponsored interview with Emily, a senior at Monarch School. What has Monarch done for you? Do you feel like it made a difference in your life? Definitely. It's made me more grateful about the things that I have because Monarch is this place where you come and you can feel like whatever's happening around you in life isn't happening. You feel stable. You feel supported. You feel like everything's correct. Like you're you're being productive and progressive with your life because you're getting an education you're not stressing about hygiene problems or or where you're going to be until blah 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 because they they have programs out until like six o'clock so you get to stay there for long periods of time it's stress reliever definitely yeah and have you been able to make lots of friends there do you feel like it's a nice friendly it's pretty tight-knit it's pretty yeah actually we all have little clicks but Every high school ever. (laughs) Yeah, but at at the same time, it's all together. Like, everyone's cool with everyone. Rarely there's conflict. Oh, wow. Well, that's nice. Oh, yeah, definitely. Less drama and gossip. That's the best part. So can you talk to me a little bit about what your school life was like before you found Monarch? Were you in and out of a few different schools or Um, what? My sophomore year of high school, I was in and out because I had to move from different places constantly throughout Vegas um like weekly monthlies hotels so either I was close enough to attend school I was not close enough so that year was kind of jumbled Mm -hmm. and then since then it's been pretty stable yeah since I found Monarch I stayed with them this is my second year now Mm -hmm. and so I've already I'm already working on fixing my 10th grade year with them and they're helping me fix those credits so that stability must be nice, right? Oh, You're, definitely. Yeah. It's a lot less stressful. Yeah. So Emily, Monarch has a lot of unique programs beyond what is offered at other high schools. Talk to me about which programs you've taken advantage of at your, during your time at Monarch. My favorite program that I've taken advantage of is internship because I've always been kind of scared of getting a job just because, you know, the rejection or the failure it always messes with me. But through the internship, I had like a little safety net because all it was was an internship. It's not necessarily a set set in stone job. So I get to experience everything that a job has to offer while also having like a bit of a cushion. If something if I mess up, it's understood because it'll be my first time and it's also paid. So that's definitely <laughs> worthwhile. Yes. And the experience like they have a, uh, a class along with the program. So. Wednesdays we have class and then Thursdays we go to work from one to three or four and on the in the classroom CFI creating first impressions they taught me how to do a resume first resume I've ever done they taught me how to dress for an interview they taught me how to speak 
when an interview, they taught me how to address certain complicated questions that you don't expect to come up. They talk about banking. I mean, they prepare you for things that normal classes in high school don't prepare you for. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely one of my favorites. I'm also in the, I'm also an ASB, which is the student council. That's ah, definitely politician. Oh yeah, definitely really fun. <laughs> getting to be in charge of certain things and getting to help out in certain areas that not all students get to help out in makes you feel a little leadership. Makes you feel, I don't know how to say it. Makes you feel good. Empowered. Yeah, definitely. Um, and all the time, they're like, for instance, this, what we're doing here, there will always be little things that I can, little opportunities that I can do to connect outside of Monarch with people. Going to the wind turbines, seeing how things work there, field trips, and there's also um, fundraisers I can participate in. One time we helped out in a, a, a mile run. We served water to the runners. It's it's great. I've done more things last year in Monarch than I have the rest of my high school so far. So this year's like I'm really excited to see what's next. So it sounds like some of those programs and classes at Monarch have sort of changed you. What have you learned about yourself during your time at Monarch? I've learned that I can be very articulate when it when I need to be, and I can express things so that people can see or imagine what I'm thinking. And I've learned how to help help um, understand what people are thinking through these programs and experiences. That's just something I've really come to know about myself over the year that I've been in Monarch. And I've also learned to be super grateful for what I have. Because despite the circumstances of what was happening outside of Monarch, I was still I was still like graced with all these amazing things. Mm-hmm. Clothes, hygiene products shower opportunities laundry opportunities food education programs clubs a lot of family and monarch they they talk about this monarch family and it's super cheesy but (laughs) but to me i think we all know it's real because we all have every student has this one connection with at least one staff or teacher and i have multiple but at least one staff or teacher has a connection with each student it's amazing Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure.